Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you are our God. Lord, thank you that we stand here first and foremost as Christians and followers of you. Lord, thank you that we are citizens of heaven. Lord, thank you that you are our rescuer and our redeemer. Thank you that you are the one who has brought us out of where we were. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has unshackled the chains, that you have turned the key in the lock of the handcuffs of our sins and ourself. Lord, thank you that you have done all that needs to be done for us to be free. Lord, I pray, as we have already, for those who are still in bondage. Lord, with the lock undone and yet locked away. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you would make us witnesses for you of the fact that we can be free. And Lord, I pray for us as well that that, that if there are ways in which we are still held locked up by our old sins and our old self, Lord, and we know that in truth we have been set free, but sometimes we still live as if we have not. And I, I pray for us today that you would help us to realize that you are the great Redeemer, that you are the great God, that you are worthy of our trust. Lord, most of all, build our trust in you in you we trust Lord that that's what our our whole belief system is based around trusting you trust based on the evidence trust based on what you have done trust based on who you are trust based on your personality trust based on the fact that you love us. But build our trust to the point where we trust you 100%. Amen. Well, we're going to finish off with Judges today. We're going we're to be looking at Judges. Um, we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. So if you've got your Bibles... Keep it open there for me at uh, Judges chapter 6, chapter 7. Um, now, you know the story of Gideon. Well, you might not. Who knows the story of Gideon? Uh, can you tell me the story of... I'm not going to ask the Sunday school teacher. Wayne, what's the story of Gideon? He went and led them out. Yes, and, and, and fantastic one. Thank you. Most of us, we think Gideon, well, I, th- I think great storyline because the, the, so the sort of the heart of the, the really sort of Hollywood part of the Gideon story, he goes out, he's got 32,000 men against a force that's way outnumbering him. God says, too many. He says, okay. God says, send away those who are scared. <laughs> And you lose two-thirds of your army and he's left with 10,000 men. And God looks at him and says, oh, Gideon, your army. And he goes, I know, Lord, it's a bit small, isn't it? And God says, actually, it's a bit big. Let's, let's fiddle this down a little bit and, and gets all those who, who lap like this. Um, and by the way, um, a lot of people say the soldiers that lapped with their hands were those who were alert and awake. No, no. More likely the... I read one guy who says, 
Most chances are these are the geeky kind of men who trip over their own feet. The Bible doesn't say that they were alert or more awake. In fact, the Bible says God's looking out to get the worst army he possibly can. And so he gets 300 men and they blow their trumpets and they shout and they wave their, their torches that were in pots and God does something amazing and the Midianites start fighting against each other and there's an amazing victory and wow, Gideon has saved the nation. Fantastic. That's, that's the bit of Gideon which, which is exciting, which is woohoo, but I actually want to go back today and I want to, <clears throat> I want to focus in not on Gideon's deliverance of Israel so much, as in, uh, I want to focus in on Gideon's deliverance. I want to focus in on the story of Gideon learning to trust God. I want to focus in on the situation and the circumstance which Wayne gave us a little bit of as well. Uh, Judges chapter 6. So let's have a, a quick read. It's, it's, it's quite a long chapter, but we'll, we'll, we'll fly through it. The Israelites, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so God handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And whatever they planted, the Midianites would come and they would attack um, marauders from Midian, Amalek, the people of the east. They would camp in the land, they'd destroy all the crops as far away as Gaza. They left Israel with nothing at all to eat, taking even the animals and the livestock away. And they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Israelites, and the Lord sent them a preacher, a prophet to the Israelites. And, he, and this is what the prophet said. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians, from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. And then the angel of the Lord came and he sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the son of Abiezer. Gideon, the son of Joash, he was threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press uh, to hide the grain from the Midianites. Angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon said, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say, The Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. He's handed us over to the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you, but Lord, or oh, but sir, is better there. Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh and, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And he answered, I will stay until you return. Now Gideon hurried home and he cooked a young goat and with a basket of flour he baked some bread without yeast. And This must have taken a while. 
that poor stranger sitting under the tree for a few hours, I reckon. And Gideon, carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, brought them out, presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. And the angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock, pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told, and the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Ah, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed! I have seen... Um, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It's all right, the Lord replied. Don't be afraid, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abiezer to this day. And that night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, and pull down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord, your God, here on this hilltop, sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. And sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood from the Asherah pole you cut down. And so Gideon took ten of his servants, did as the Lord had commanded, and he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been cut down, and in their place a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. And the people said to each other, Who did this? And after asking around, making a careful search, ten people, no secret's going to be safe, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal, for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. And if Baal is truly a god, let him defend himself, destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, from then on, Gideon was called Jeroboam, which means let Baal defend himself. And soon afterwards, the armies attack and the Spirit of God comes on Gideon and he raises the horn and all of the men of the town, his own clan, and all over come and join him. He gets his army of 32,000. But before he goes off, Gideon said to God, God, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, um, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight and And if the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to use me to rescue Israel. Uh, And that's just what happened. And then Gideon said to God, Please don't be angry with me, God, but one more request. Let me use the fleece to test the ground one more time, but this time let it stay dry while the ground gets, gets wet with dew. And so that night God did as Gideon asked, and the fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with And so we start with Judges again, the very first six verses of of Judges 6, with Israel caught in sin once more. Israel, just remember the cycle of Judges. They sin, God rescues, they sin some more. God rescues, they sin even worse. God rescues, they sin even worse. 
And this time, the, the punishment that God inflicts on them is, it's shorter than before. It's not 18 years, it's not 20 years, it's, it's only 6 or 7 years. But, but what it lacks in time is made up for in, in how bad it is. Um, last week, uh, we, we heard with, with Deborah, in the time of Deborah, that the people would travel along the back routes because the, the main highways weren't safe. But, but this week, forget traveling. You're going up into the mountains. You're making yourself a hideaway in a cave because you're so frightened. We've, we've got our hero of the story here. He's in a wine press. Um, imagine a, a piece of limestone with a big pit dug in it and a little pit dug in it. And as you put, you put your grapes in the big pit... And there's a channel leading from the big pit to the little pit. And that channel has is, is got like straw and plant material over there, clogging it up kind of. And you jump in the wine pit and you stamp on the grapes and it goes filtered through the grassy stuff and goes into the little pit where it ferments and after a few days you get your wine. Grapes, you, you're not going to have a big one. Like, it'll be smallish. Our heroes in a wine press threshing out grain. Wine, uh, usually, you'd thresh grain on big, exposed places. But this is the the feel of Israel at the time. They are just living, petrified, and whatever they do, they do it in secret, trying to hide, trying to to scrape and scrimp and save. The Midianites, we're told, and the Amalekites and the people of the east, every year at harvest time they come. These are, um, these are nomads, and they've got a secret weapon, namely the camel. And they arrive every year, and they take everything that they've got. Camel is very good for going fast and going far. Um, and they bring, because they're nomads, they all come at once. The whole family arrives, and you sit down, and there they are, covering the land. In fact, chapter 7 speaks of them as covering the land like locusts. And so they're there, and they just eat until everything's gone, and then they go home again. And can you imagine Israel, after a few years of this, you're reduced to starvation. You don't have any animals because they've been taken, either eaten or taken away. You don't have any grain because most of it has been taken away. And so eventually we hear that they cry out to the Lord for help. But what I find really interesting about this situation is, is that even while they are crying out to the Lord, they are also crying out to Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah, fertility gods. Oh, may our fields be productive. Kind of stupid, isn't it, to ask for productive fields when you know it's just going to be taken away? Kind of stupid to pray to Baal and Asherah to start with. And and this is rampant, I think, across the whole of Israel because we we hear that that Gideon's dad is in charge of the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole in his little village, Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah. And if there was an altar to Baal there, surely there would be more everywhere else. We've been doing the Judges for four weeks now. Are you tired of this cycle? 
Doesn't it irritate you, these stupid Israelites? I mean, really, you, you, you had Othniel to start with, and then you had Ehud, and then you had Shamgar, and, and Deborah, and Barak, and now you've got, got Gideon. Come on, get the message already. Worship God, worship God. Doesn't it irritate you? Don't you read it and go, ah, these guys are just thick as planks. Of course, if I look into my own heart, can I really point a finger? If I look at them and go, shouldn't they have got it by now? I mean, if, if, if I feel even a smidgen irritated by their stubborn rebellion and four weeks of the same thing, how must God feel about my own ungrateful, sinful heart? I mean, we've got so much more than them. We have Jesus, the full revelation of God. But you know what I love about the judges' stories is that they speak of the mercy of God. And that is so true today, even as it was then, because because God hates sin, and yet he is so full of mercy. And in reply to their cries, what does God do? Well, in the past, he raised up Othniel. In the past, he raised up Ehud. In the past, he sent his prophet Deborah to call Barak to go and lead Israel against their oppressors. And today, what does God do? Israel is crying out on the verge of destitution and God sends them a preacher man. And everyone goes, what on earth are you doing here? We wanted help. Because look at what the preacher says to them. He, he says to them, you know what, if, you, if you're calling out to God, why? Why are you calling out to God? You see, the prophet comes to them and says, do you even know why you're in the trouble that you're in? You're calling out because your circumstances are horrible, but you don't know why God is doing this to you. You don't seem to understand. And what the prophet does, he, he basically tells the Israelites what they should have already known. He, he tells them the history of what God has done with his people, how he's rescued them out of Egypt, how he's made them his own. It's, it's a wonderful line there. It says, I brought you up out of slavery. I rescued you from the Egyptians, all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies. I gave you this land. I told you I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you haven't listened to me. I think what the prophet shows is, is God's reaction to being treated as a slot machine. An automaton. And don't, don't we often treat prayer like that? And put in your five cents and... Say a prayer and God will do it. Oh God, give me a parking spot. Ah. Or even worse. You know, sometimes, like here, we can turn to God in our moments of need and expect Him to answer us and demand that He answer us even when we have been not walking in his ways. 
And the message of the prophet is, is I think, pretty clear. It's, it's God saying, if you've broken trust with God, why do you think you can demand that God answer you? I think what we've got here is we've, we, we have Israel feeling truly regretful. But not at all repentant. See, regret is all about me and repentance is all about God. Mere regret doesn't actually produce change. Um, I'm talking about you, you just, they're feeling sorrowful about the consequences of their sin. Um, not about the sin itself. If God had never sent people to chastise them, if the Midianites had never come, they would never have been regretful and never have called out to God. And God sends his prophet and says, you know what, I think regret is not enough. You need to actually repent. You, you, need, to, you need to change. You need to, you need to turn back to God. You see, that, that's repentance is different from regret in that it produces change. It, it moves beyond regret. Repentance moves beyond regret to hope. Um, Repentance is not focusing on the consequences of sin. Repentance is focusing on the only real permanent consequence of sin, and namely the loss of God. And repentance, repentance is all about, have I lost God? Forgiveness then comes and says, no, you haven't lost God, and and, and that's why repentance leads us beyond regret because if we have thought the worst thing that can happen is losing God, God says, I'm still yours. I haven't abandoned you. I forgive you. Then you move beyond regret. You change. You, you, you're different. You've got hope for the future. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Verse 10, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When God challenges us about sin in our own lives, do we respond with regret or repentance? Are we sorrowful for the sin or for the consequences of the sin? And when God forgives us, do we keep sinning? Or do we, with the Spirit's help, change? Because if we don't change, have we repented? I have a habit. Can I tell them this, Taryn? I have a habit of wiping my ears with my finger. 
And Taryn says to me, stop that, Nick. That's disgusting. And I say, I'm sorry. She says, you're not sorry because you don't stop doing it. What's that, Grant? <laughs> I'm not deaf. I just, I try, but I, 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 ah. you, you're all on my back now on that, by the way. But that's the difference between regret. I'm sorry that I made my wife unhappy. <laughs> and repentance. And just because you've repented doesn't mean that you'll never do it again. I have actually repented about this. But just because you've repented doesn't mean that you all of a sudden become perfect. It's a process. Um, And when it comes to spiritual things, we need God's help like you better believe it. Um, and, And also remember, the more God is dealing with us, the more we become aware of God dealing with us the more we can become aware of when we slip up. Many who are making progress in their spiritual life feel that they are not because as you grow in Christ, you become more sensitive to sin. Um, The danger is when we are so desensitized to sin that we think we stand, lest we fall. I'm going to fall hard when I get home tonight. God in his mercy says to us, I want you to remember all that I've done. And out of that is supposed to come repentance, not regret. But God is so extra, extra merciful that that even when we sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly, to bring us to God. God does not abandon us in his mercy. Uh, The Bible here in Judges doesn't tell us what the Israelite response to this prophet is. Um, it, it does seem, though, that he was preaching to the rafters. It does seem like, like these people who heard him, their hearts were dulled to God's call. Because in his mercy, God sent a message and they didn't listen. God, however, refuses to abandon them. He comes and he sends a deliverer, Gideon. Um, he saves, as we've already seen, in such a way that Nobody must disagree that it is God who has saved Israel. There can be no doubt, and yet they keep falling into sin after this again. And we have the story of God calling Gideon. And and no other judge is called by God personally in the same sort of way, face to face. Um, And not because Gideon is super spiritual that he gets to have a face to face with God. Gideon is about as far from being spiritual as you can find. God is just reaching into a community that has totally abandoned him. We've said already we find Gideon in the wine press and he's busy threshing some grain and, and, and he says to him, Mighty warrior, God's with you. And Gideon looks at this person, the stage, human form must think it's a, a human. He says, well, if God is with us, I'm a realist, man. I'm a realist. 
the stories of the mighty deeds of the past are irrelevant in the light of what we're going through at the moment. God might have worked long ago, but let's be honest, he doesn't care for us anymore. God doesn't love us. I mean, Gideon knows the stories. But what the prophet said about why this is all happening hasn't sunk in. He knows the stories, but but they're stories to him. They're, They're nothing more. Okay, maybe a little bit of worship in the family of God, but not real. I mean, uh, Gideon's dad, Joash, means uh, it's a shortening of Jehoash, which means Yahweh is strong. Isn't it kind of ironic that Yahweh is strong, who taught his son all about what God had done in the past? Yahweh is strong is the guy in charge of the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. And there's no conflict of interest here. Yes, Gideon, let me tell you what God did in the past, uh, but we'll do it later because we have to first go and offer a bull to Baal. Or his god El. Uh, Baal's father is El. It's really weird family lines. If your god has got family lines and ancestries, there's probably an indication that it's not God. The angel of the Lord, the Lord keeps speaking to to Gideon. Eventually Gideon says to him, I want proof that this message is from God. And and Gideon's actions do speak a little bit towards an amount of trust, an inkling of trust in God, because in the midst of a famine he goes and fetches this flower and this animal, um, a young goat, unleavened bread made from the flour, the word there is an ephah for flour, depending on your translation, which weighs between 15 and 20 kilograms. So in a famine situation, Gideon's got enough trust to give up 20 kilograms of flour, which is quite impressive, and quite a bit of bread. I don't know, it must have been baking for hours. Um, and of course, we, we know that the messenger of God put his staff down and fire consumed it, taken as a burnt offering, and Gideon goes ballistic because he reckons he has seen the angel of God and he will die. And just as a, a very quick aside, who is this angel of the Lord? Um, it seems like a human figure, uh, but until the burnt offering and all of a sudden Gideon knows that this is something else, but but if you look through the, the, the word there, half of the time it speaks about the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon, and the other half it speaks of the Lord speaking to Gideon. Um, capital letters, L-O-O-R-D, L-O-R-D, in small caps, um, means Yahweh. And so it says, Yahweh said to him, and Gideon replied, Lord in small letters, sir. So what we've got here is, is I, I think, This is a messenger from the Lord. Angel means messenger, but at the same time it is the Lord. A bit of a hint at the Trinity. and In fact, you can even say that this is is possibly even the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus stepping in and having a chat to Gideon. Because how can he be the Lord and also the messenger of the Lord at the same time?
And I love that because Jesus is all about reaching out to people in desperate places. And, and eternity messes up our concept of time and it's quite possible for Jesus to... I reckon it might be Jesus um, appearing to Gideon here. And we see Gideon has gone from being one who thought that God had abandoned his people to one who met the Lord and who God uses to save his people. But there's still a challenge because before Gideon can go and save Israel from the Midianites, he's first got to do battle with Baal in his own house, in his own family. Uh, he's got a battle for the hearts and minds of Israel. He's got a battle for his own heart and his own mind. You see, God's not going to let him keep on with the syncretism of this worshipping both Baal and God. No, God says to Gideon, here, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to use you, Gideon, if you're going to trust me, you have to trust me absolutely. And so what I want you to do, I want you to go out, I want you to destroy the altar of Baal, I want you to cut down the Asherah pole, basically like a tree that they took all the limbs off. Very weird. Chop it down, build a new altar, probably on the same spot over there. Put the, the Asherah pole, chop it up. Ha, oh, horror of horror. Put it on the altar. Get the second bull, seven years old, seven, the number of years that they've been facing this persecution. They must have been protecting this bull like there's no tomorrow to keep it safe for seven years. Take this, this seven-year-old bull. Bulls were, were the big thing offered to Baal. What does he do? He offers it to God. Um. You might have remember one of the things he said when God said, I'm going to use you. He said, oh, I'm a weakling. I'm from the poorest person, blah, blah, blah. He's got ten servants. He's not that poor. His dad's in charge of the altar of Baal. He's not that insignificant. Anyway, he takes his ten men. He goes out at night. He rips up the altar. He does all that God says that he should do. Because the issue is that Israel has been serving foreign gods and you know what happens the next morning they find out and they're angry and they want to kill Gideon for doing this because in Israel the heresy is not worshipping false gods the heresy is worshipping the true God how dare you worship God and break down the altar of Baal Might be a bit similar to our our country in some ways. How dare you worship God and say that He alone is the way to the Father? How dare you worship Jesus? You see, they claimed to be God's people, but they had altars in their back gardens. And I wonder whether sometimes we don't also have altars in our own backyards. Do we worship God first and absolutely? Or do we worship idols of popularity or fashion or money or status or self-image or success or whatever? Do we worship an idol idol even? God in his mercy says to Gideon, break it down and follow me. Break it down and I will use you. 
But notice the order there. God doesn't say, break it down and then I will use you. God says, I will use you, now break it down. I'm going to show mercy to you. Break it down. Not the other way around. God saves us and then he sanctifies us. Just very quickly, Gideon blows the trumpet, the people come. As he goes to battle, he puts out these fleeces. Just just two seconds because it's it's important, this. Um, was Gideon doing the right thing by putting out a fleece to God? And if it was wrong, why did God respond? And should we imitate Gideon? Oh God, if you want me to be a missionary in deepest, darkest Congo, let me get a phone call from a blind man with a limp asking for a donation so that he can buy a giraffe. Oh, what do you know? It hasn't happened. Uh, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And one of the temptations, Satan said, get God to, to do a sign. Turn these loaves into bread. And Jesus ticked him off. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think, it, I think it was the last one. I think it was the throwing down from the high point and the angels lifting him up. But you know, there's a difference here because Gideon is not asking for a little sign. Remember, we're dealing with a person here who knows stories about God but doesn't know God. He's going to go risk his life with 32,000 men, he thinks, against a vastly outnumbering army, and he doesn't know God. See, what he wants, I think, with the fleeces is not to... He wants to know who God really is. This isn't about making decisions. This is about the big picture of who God is. In a sense, you can paraphrase Gideon. He's saying to God, God, I believe you. You've called me. You've done an amazing. Your spirit came upon me when I blew the horn, but um, help me to trust you, God. The issue's not with you. The issue's with me, says Gideon. He trusted that God could save his people, but he wanted to trust even more. See, this is not about making a decision whether or not to do something. This is about, this is about knowing whether God would really be with him. God, are you real? That's what Gideon's asking. Look, it's still not a good idea to put out a fleece and go, God, are you real? You've done it before. You know, there's, there's a big difference here. I'll tell you in a second. Uh, the, the, I'll tell you now. The difference is, Gideon knew stories of God. Gideon was limited in his knowledge of God. We have an incredible advantage over Gideon in that 
in the past, God spoke to our forefathers and our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Isn't that a difference? Gideon says, God, I need to know that you are. God's ultimate answer is Jesus Christ coming and saying, this is who I am for you. Gideon had a moment when the Spirit came upon him and he blew the horn and then the Spirit left. We have a difference. The Spirit comes. And stays, adopts us into the family of God. I mean, it's not wrong to doubt. Can I, who's ever doubted God? It's not wrong to doubt. It's wrong to doubt and pretend that God doesn't know about it. Is he treating God like an idiot? What Gideon is doing here is going to God. He's saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That reminds you of something. It reminds me of the man whose son wasn't being healed by the disciples. Jesus says, if you believed, this is the Nicholas translation, and the man says, Lord, I believe, I believe you can do it. Help my unbelief. That's what Gideon's doing. He's, he's a new believer who knows a little bit about God, but he just says, God, I want to know so much more. What am I trying to say? Let me summarize in four sentences. The problem is that we're all caught in a spiral of sin. And that's true of the Israelites and it's true of us. Um, The good news is God is fantastic at breaking spirals. And if you're a Christian and you've got the Holy Spirit, it goes from being a downward spiral, hopefully, to an upward spiral. God is merciful. He saves me. He saves you. He brings us to repentance. Uh, Sometimes, like Gideon, when we have sinned against God, we feel like God has abandoned us. But the good news of Judges 6 is that God does not abandon his people. He is faithful by his grace. He reminds us of this. Uh, He does challenge us to put off the sin which so easily entangles us so that we can run the race. That's what he said to Gideon. I've saved you. Now put off the sin. Break down the altar. Run the race. And, And really the thing is, we've got to trust him. It's not always easy, but the more we know of him, the easier it is. Can I borrow your bulletin? So, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And let us do this by setting our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Amen. Thanks, Nick. (coughs) It's good to know that we're not the only dummies as Christians, isn't it? We keep falling for the same trip, same trap, but God is always there and grace is always there.